about five years ago, there's a study that came out. So I realize it's kind of dated, and I don't know if it's still happening, but they said that there were 20,000 people that went to the emergency room for anxiety, for elevated heartbeat, for seizure, and some for heart attack. And all 20,000 people that had those symptoms went because they had basically overdosed on an energy drink, a monster. That, that those numbers were actually twice as high as they had been four years previous to that. Now, to be fair, before you, before you run home and tell your kids they can never buy a monster at the 7-Eleven ever again, the majority of those people that had those reactions were mixing that, that energy drink with alcohol or other drugs or other stimulants. And so, you know, it, just a monster typically isn't going to put you in the hospital. But you had these people that they were having these physical reactions that hospitalized them to, to 20,000 people. That, that's huge. Trying to kind of get that edge. I just got to get something to get me through the day. I've got to get something that'll help me stay up a little bit longer because I've got to, I've got to have this extra edge to pass this test or, or, or to make it through this event. And, and so we've gone to a substance. I think in a lot of ways, we tend to see faith that way as well. Maybe not you and I, but people do. People see faith as kind of, I mean, I, I need something that's going to get me through probably not the day, but this season of life. Or it's going to get me through this year, or maybe it's going to get me through life. And we, see, we can see faith as this fix that if I go do this, if I go show up at church, then, the, then God is going to give me the supernatural to make everything better or to help me get through this difficult time. A lot of us have been there. If not, you know people that have. Something tragic happens in their life, and they turn to faith or they turn to church. They, they, they come when uh, they're kind of in the, in the valley of life to come and kind of, God, help me get me through this. I need a little bit of your power to push me over the edge. Now, in reality, if we're being fair, faith does do that. I mean, that's not all faith is, but faith does help us walk. You know, if the Lord, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and, and you're going through a valley, I mean, what you know is that Jesus is there alongside of you to walk with you to help you get through. So we're not, we're not saying that that isn't the case, but faith is a whole lot more than that. But for some people, we see it kind of like as the energy drink. It's what's going to get us through. And so when we talk about idols, I want us to kind of keep that in the back of our mind because when we have idols, idols are typically things that we're leaning on to replace the Lord to help us get through this season of life or to get through this year, to get through these next couple of days. Now for us, and I'm glad that the students picked the TV show American Idol, even though it's now not on anymore, because that word American helps us see things a little bit differently. When, when we in America think of idols, or I say we, I do, I tend to think of like Far East religion. Do you? I mean, like I think of like Buddha statues. You know, when I think of idols, that's what I think of. I think of like the statue, and I don't even know what it is. The, it's the lady, and she's got her hands folded together, and then she has the multiple arms, like three arms on each side. You know what I'm talking about? She's like the Far Eastern god of multitasking. I don't know what she does, you know, but that, that's, what, that's what I think of when I think of idols. I think of, of these 
images, and again, if you go back to the Old Testament, that tends to be the picture that we get painted as we read the Old Testament. The people of God were, were coming up against other people groups that had these carved images. They had idols. And so that kind of resonates in the back of our mind. And then you think about it, media and television, the things that we watch, they actually lean in, help us lean into that as well, right? How many movies or TV shows have you watched where the characters in the movie or the show, they're going after some ancient artifact, something that, that, that dates way back before, you know, current history, and that, that artifact has some kind of special power to it, right? If we can just find that artifact, we can just find that, that, that piece, of, then it will save the day, it'll give us the power to get, you know, get through, save the world. So media helps us think that way too, that idols are graven images, that's an Old Testament phrase, that people go and worship. But what if, what if American idols are different? What if they're not something tangible? What if they're not something that we can put out in our living room and light some incense to and pray? What if they are much more insidious than that? There's a pastor named Justin Bizard. In his book, he suggests that, he, that there are four big idols for Americans. He says one of them is comfort. One of them is control. One of them is approval. And one of them is power. Now, we're not going to go through. He, he, you can read his stuff if you want, but I think he's on to something. Th those things aren't things we can touch. We, we don't go, hey, this week, kids, gather around. We're not going to church today. We're going to worship the God of control, and here's our little image that represents him. We don't do that. Again, that's foreign to us. But is it possible that even those of us in the room who are, are, are trying to follow Jesus have taken Jesus off of the throne of our heart and replaced it with an idol such as one of these? You know, the scary thing is, one, we can't, we can't touch them. If your kids came home with a statue of some foreign religion and they put it on the kitchen table and said, I just want to leave this here, most evangelical Christian parents would take it and crush it and throw it away and call a Catholic priest for an exorcism on your kids and sprinkle holy water. You know, we, we, would, we would push back against that. But what if it is something that's not tangible? What if, what if having control over our life and our family has become so powerful in our life that it, it dictates the decisions we make. It dictates how we respond to circumstances. That, that's, that's an idol. The scary thing is this. Not only can we not see it and touch it, we can't just get out of, off the kitchen table. A lot of times, they're not bad things, right? Control, control is not inherently a bad thing. In fact, if you were in a situation that was spinning out of control, you, you were, you know, there, there was chaos all around and, and, and and somebody stepped up, to the, stepped up to the front and they took control of the situation and calmed everyone down and put the chaos back in order and everybody was able to breathe deep and make better decisions, we would lift that person up as a leader. We would go, man, thank goodness for her. We're so glad he showed up and took control of the situation. Thinking about our police officers. You know, police officers help bring control to our society. That's not a bad thing. If you want to live in a society with, with anarchy and no control, man, good luck, with, good luck with that. So control is not a bad thing. It just can cross over into idolatry. Approval? 
was one of the things that Bizarre post, uh, suggested. Approval's not a bad thing. I mean, none, none of you walked in here today going, man, I hope when I sit down in a small group, I hope it's full of a lot of people who don't like me. I mean, right? <laughs> That's dumb. We want people to like us. That's not a bad thing. I mean, we, we do a, a, a approval ratings of our presidents to, to see how good they're doing. So, I mean, approval's not a bad thing. Comfort's not a bad thing. You know, if you have margin in your life, margin tends to lead to comfortability. If it's financial margin, you have less stress finances. If you have margin in your time, you feel more comfortable. You feel stressed out when you are running out of time or you're running out of money. And so we're, we're trying to get margin because we're trying to get comfortability. That's not a bad thing. And power is not a bad thing. Power makes things happen. So these four things that he suggests are idols for the American people. <laughs> I think he's onto something, but that's what makes it a little bit more scary. We can't touch it. It's not tangible. We don't see it often when it's happening, and they're not bad things. But what Satan does, as he's always done, is take good things and pervert them and skew them into things that actually separate us from God. And so Satan has taken some good things that the American people, you and I, in Williamson County, love and appreciate things that many of us are, are chasing after, and he's turned them into idols that we're chasing after rather than just some good things that are the blessing of God. So if you have your Bible, I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 44. And we're going to see that, that, that we often, it's kind of where we're going this week, we often try to find life in powerless idols. And in Isaiah 44, we're going to read a passage of Scripture. And, and in the context, Isaiah is, is, a, is a prophet of God, and he is prophesying a little bit before and through the Babylonian exile of the Israelites. So the Israelites, God's people, they have had some ups and downs. We'll talk about that in a little bit. They've had ups and downs of walking with the Lord, not walking with the Lord. And, and, and when they're walking with the Lord, things are going good. Then they get comfortable, and then they, they start to make bad decisions. Usually those decisions end up in adopting idols of other countries that are around or other people groups. And then all of a sudden, they're not worshiping the Lord. They're worshiping idols, and God comes and brings the hammer. And one of those hammers was when Babylon invades and takes Israel into exile. Well, in the course of what we're about to read in Isaiah chapter 44, Israel is struggling through living as exiles in a country that has graven images, have idols. And so they're wrestling with this. As we, as we move into this culture, we've been taken out of our home, where now many of us have been moved to Babylon, and the culture here is to worship false gods. It's to have idols. And so Isaiah is going to give them a word from God that we see in verse, we're, we're going to read in pieces. We don't read it all at once. We're going to look at verses 9 through 11 first. And verse 9 kind of sets the, the tone for everything that we're going to read. It's kind of like the main statement for Isaiah. He says, all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. Now, to be fair... The people of Babylon, they would have disagreed with Isaiah. They would have said even, hey, our idols, 
We don't believe that the idols are gods. The idols are just representations of God. So the idols aren't actually powerful. We just, we place them in our homes and we come and we bow down to them because they help us focus our attention on the God that we're worshiping. But Isaiah's counter argument would be those gods, quote unquote, that you're worshiping, worshiping don't exist. There's no such thing. There's only, there's only one God, Yahweh is the God of the Israelites. And so while you say this idol is just a representation, it's representing nothing. There's really nothing out there that you're worshiping. So all you're doing is bowing down to a block of wood. So you actually are putting your focus on this because this is the only thing that exists. I think it's interesting. And I want you to see in verse nine, he says, all who fashion idols are nothing. That word there is the Hebrew word tohu. It means emptiness. It can be translated as it is here, nothing. It means chaos. And Isaiah is not here to agree with me, but with what we're about to see, I think that is a purposeful choice of words that he gives. It's actually the same word that's used, and you don't have to flip there, I'll just read it to you. It's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where it said, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. The earth was without form, it was nothing. It was chaos. It's the same word. Now, I think Isaiah is using this word to help people start thinking about where he's headed. He's giving a picture linking back to Genesis 1-2, where right after creation, man is created in the image of who? God, right? This is Genesis chapter 2 and 3, that God creates the created order, and then he creates man, and he says, We've created, I've created man in my own image, out of nothing. Now, what we're going to see in the next couple of verses kind of shed light on that. Let's look at verses 12 through 14. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Now, when we read that, like I read it for the first time, what? I don't really understand what's happening. Well, a Babylonian god, or back in Isaiah's time, when, when idols were made, they were fashioned out of wood. So you'd get a, a wooden idol that was carved to look like a person or to look like whatever the idol was supposed to look like. And then the wooden carving had metal overlaid on top of it. But what we see here in verses 12 through 14 is Isaiah reverses the process of how the idol was made. It even ends, with chapter, ends in verse 14 he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. So he kind of ends with the beginning. There's a tree planted and it grows up and then someone chops it down and they take the wood and they, they, they make a plane and they, they get a compass and they fashion it out and they cut out the wood. And so now we're, we're going in reverse order back to verse 12 where the ironsmith then overlays the metal on it. What I think Isaiah is doing here, and again, he's not here to confirm it. I think he is, is helping the Israelites see through some satire, which we know this is heavily satire, and you're, you're going to see some more of that in a second. 
is that that word nothing that we read the very beginning, that was hopefully to link them to Genesis 1, 2, where God made man in his own image, is he's helping the Israelites see and the people who are hearing this that we have, we've, we've reversed that process. No longer are we okay with God making man in his own image, but as men, we're trying to make God in our own image. That's what idolatry is. And so he reverses being made in the image of God and reverses the process even in, in this bit of prose to help us see the point that you, you, we're, trying to, we're trying to fashion God. We're trying to reverse the way that it really happened and do just the opposite. Let's look in verse 15 through 16. And here's where the satire comes on heavily. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a God and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself, warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a God, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you're my God. He gives us this picture of how, how, how crazy this idea is. He says the man has, has taken the, the materials and, and he's cut down some wood and, and he's going to make it out. But before he does that, he takes it and he, he turns it into a fire and he cooks food over it and he eats and he's satisfied. His stomach's full and he's, he's sitting next to the warmth. And then with the leftovers, that's key, with, with the leftovers, he takes it and fashions an idol out of it and then puts it down and says, hey, you have the power to take care of me. The satire is that he's already taken care of himself. He's already used wood to cook food. He's already used the wood to make a fire to keep warm. And then with a leftover, he's made this idol that he's going to place his, his trust in. And, and so Isaiah is giving us, he goes, do you, not, do you not see how foolish this is? How silly this is? You've imbued power to something that was left over material, placed your life in it when, when you actually were taking care of yourself. That's how silly it is. You don't even get that you made something with your own hands and have said, now that I've made it, you take over and take care of me. In this situation, man is the creator. The image is the creation. And he's asking, the creator is asking the creation to lead. And Isaiah is hoping that the Israelites see this and they realize how foolish it is that these, 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 these idols don't actually have power. They don't have the ability to give life. They were given life by man. There's, there's no power there. The power is limited in that. And then in verse 18 through 20, he says this, they know not, nor do they discern for he is shut or he's covered or smeared, the word there, their eyes, so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Some great stuff. 
Isaiah comes back, and after he kind of paints this reverse process of making God an image of man, he says, guys, you just don't get it. And the Babylonians just don't get it. You're looking for life in something that is powerless. And you can't even see that after you did all of it and you made it, that you're holding this idol in your right hand, and you can't even see that it is hopeless. And when we read this, like in Isaiah... It make, I think to me it makes sense. Like, yeah, how silly is that? How, how crazy is that? To make something and to put it out in front and go, I'm going to worship that. But again, what if our idols aren't things that we've made with our hands? What if they're things like money? What if they're things, like we talked about earlier, what if there are things like control? That have so captured us, they really don't have any power. You, you're, you're, you're chasing after control. You want to be able to, to, to make sure that your kids are safe and that, and that everything that they have uh, is set up for them. You want them to have the greatest life, and so you're helping them you know, with, with all of the, the, their college stuff. You're helping them, and you go and talk to the coach when they have a problem because deep down inside, you're trying to control the situation for them. And you know what's true? You don't have control. You don't. I mean, you can work at it, and you can chase after it, and you can grab pieces of it, but ultimately, you don't have control. A fire could start right now down a hallway and cut you off from your kids, and you would have to run down the stairs, and they would hopefully be led down the other stairs by their small group leaders, and we'd all get out to safety, but for that moment, you wouldn't have control. We go on mission trips, and the thing that really saddens me the most. Let me talk to parents. I won't share this with kids. What saddens me the most is, is, is we have parents who go, I'm not letting my kid go on that mission trip because it's, they won't say this. They'll come up with other reasons, but then they'll tell a friend and it gets back to me because people talk. True story, multiple times. I, they're afraid. It's not safe. Now, if you asked them, so do you think that Brett and the youth ministry would take your students and our students into a place that was dangerous and unsafe? They'd go, no, 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 no. But deep down in their heart, there's a control issue. And you know what they don't realize? That while a group of students are in another country serving the Lord as safe as could be, their kids could be here, and while they're trying to keep control of them, could be in a car accident and lose their life. We don't have control. And we can chase after it, we don't. Money? We've talked about this a lot. Talk about money a lot. Because the scripture talks about money a lot. I mean, the more money you have, sometimes there are things in life that do get easier. Like I said, their margin comes. But you know how many people have money and they've chased after it and money's become an idol and they're more unhappy now than they were ever before? You had to read the, the statistical research on people who win the lottery. They go from having nothing to becoming instantaneous millionaires and how miserable their life is. Because money doesn't, there's not life in money. Life becomes this idol. Is money a good thing? Absolutely. It pays bills. I hope you have enough for that, you know? I hope you have enough for some margin. I hope you have enough that, that you, can, you can give to missions and things like that. There's no greater joy. Like in, in our budget, in our home, one of the things that we do is we, we, put a, we have our, our tithe. We also have a thing that's charitable giving. And I love, I love when we have teenagers that have gone off to college um, and, and I see on 
Facebook or something like that, that they're, they're trying to raise money for missions. I, I love being able to go into our charitable giving pot that we have, because that's what it's for, and to go, yeah, I'll send you some money so that you can go and continue the gospel work now that you're out of the youth ministry in college, because I love seeing that. But we built margin into our life. In order to do that's a great thing. So, I mean, I, I tell the Lord all the time, hey, the more money you want to give me, the more margin I've got, the more charitable giving I've got. So, Lord, I'll take a million. That's fine. You know, I'll be giving a lot of it back. But it's not an idol. It's a good thing. But it's not, it's not dominating my life. It's not controlling the decisions I make. It's not, I don't respond to circumstances based on that. If the Lord says, hey, I want you to do this, my first response is, God, I, don't, I can't do that because I don't have the money. Even if I don't have the money, my first response is, okay, Lord, how are we going to do that? Let's go. I'm in. You know, not only do you know my checking account, you know what's coming into my checking account that I don't even know. So, Lord, I'm going I'm to trust you in that because money is not an idol for our family. For some people, it is. It controls you, and, and it's everything that you're going after. There's all kinds of things out there that, that sneak in, and they're not images made out of wood with metal overlaid on them like we read in Isaiah. But they're as powerless as those things are. And, we, and we, let them, we let them guide us and lead us. And what they do is they replace the Lord on the throne of our heart. And when that happens, we're in the danger zone. And here's what I believe. I believe that a lot of Americans have more idols than we know of. They're, we can't see them and touch them. It takes takes maybe a conversation like this or a conversation with your kids for the Holy Spirit to say something to your heart through the voice of someone else. And all of a sudden you go, oh, that hits home. I think that may be an idol. Now here's what happens. You might even have something right now that the Holy Spirit's kind of laid on your heart that you're wrestling through and going, yeah, that may be an idol in our life. Let me tell you what's going to happen. As soon as you walk out of this room, as soon as you head over to the worship service, Satan's going to start doing things, engineering circumstances to distract you from that truth because he doesn't want you to deal with it. He doesn't want you to replace that idol. He's happy with you having something other than the Lord on the throne of your life because his, his desire, John 10, 10 says, is to steal, kill, and destroy you. And he knows that that's how it happens. So here would be my suggestion, a humble suggestion. If the Lord has laid something on your heart, write it down. Write it down before you walk out of here on the inside of your Bible. Write it on your hand. Pull out your phone. Set it in your calendar. Set an alarm to say, I'm going to come back and process this with the Lord. I'm going to spend some time in prayer about this thing that God has placed on my heart. I'm going to go back to the scripture. I'm going to pull a concordance out. See, if the Bible says anything about that, idolatry. And see, God, I just want to, I want to walk with you because I want you to be king of my life and not control or money or comfort or, 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 or my kids or whatever it may be. So what do we do, though? Once we've, once we've discovered it, once the Lord has kind of laid on our heart, hey, here's this thing, here's the thing that's battling for passion in your life, here's this thing, you, you don't consult me, you don't come to me for decisions, you go to it for decisions. Once we realize what it is, what do we do? Well, the answer goes back to the Old Testament. We're not going to read that through. We'd, we'd have to read the entire Old Testament to see it all. But you go back to the Old Testament, what you find is, what I referenced earlier, the Israelites having highs and lows. And every time they were in a low and a high came back, place, and God would raise up a judge or he'd raise up a king that was a good one, 
They would come in, and one of the first things we see is that they were supposed to, some did and some didn't, they were supposed to get the idols out of the land. They were supposed to cut down the Asherah poles. They were supposed to get rid of the idolatry to reestablish back in the people's mind that God is the one true God. And the great kings that got brought up, the ones that their story ended well, most of them did just that. They, they cut the idols out. Man, again, so easy if you've got a statue in your house. So difficult if it's something that you can't grab a hold of and get rid of. So as you've if you, as you discovered this thing that's replaced the Lord on the throne of your life, your next conversation with God is, God, how do I get rid of it? If money is the issue, now again, you're probably not going to be able to go home and go, okay, kids, listen, I'm going to quit my job because money's an idol, so we're getting all the money out of the house. We're going to be homeless, but it's going to be a good thing. That, 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 see the difficulty there? But maybe it comes into something where you go, hey, we have, we have spending problems. And so maybe part of that process for you, and I'm just spitballing here, is God sending you through a Dave Ramsey course something like that so you can learn how to manage your money. Maybe it's sitting down with somebody and, 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 and that's a financial professional and help you figure out how to create a budget and help you live within your means so that you start getting margin and help, help you start saying no to the things that you want, that money provides, that you think is bringing you satisfaction so that you can turn your attention back to the Lord and not to the things that the money's buying. I don't, I don't, I don't know the answer for every idol. I will tell you this, though, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult to figure it out. Grant Desma, second-round draft pick of the Oakland A's. I mean, how many kids are, are, would love to be the second-round pick of a Major League Baseball team? On the fast track, you can see a picture of him in his A's uniform. He retired from baseball at the age of 23. And he actually went uh, and became a brother like in a Catholic. Where did they go? I'm not Catholic. Somebody used to be Catholic. Monastery, thank you. Uh, maybe I should go check one out so I can know what it is. So here, here's a quote that he said. When somebody asked him, do you miss baseball? And I know it's small, so I'll read it to you. He said, I still don't miss playing professionally, but I've come to enjoy the game of baseball itself more. When I let go of it as my idol, I was unable to enjoy it for what it's worth. When you're projecting your own designs on something and taking it more seriously than it should be, you don't get what God intended you to get out of it. When you simply accept things for what they are and don't expect more than what they can give, you experience the satisfaction you're supposed to. It's wisdom from a 23-year-old young man that said, my dream, everything I was chasing after became an idol for me. And so I cut it out of my life and I walked away. But what you see is, he, he didn't say in this, he said in the other part of the hour, he still plays baseball with his friends and he still loves baseball. He didn't cut it out and go, baseball is bad. But he said, hey, for it, it became an idol for me. So I've got to step away from the part of it that's, that's idolatry. And, and in our minds, we're like, how could you do that? Millions of dollars, you know. And he said, I found real satisfaction. So we You've got to cut it out, figure out how to get the idol out. And then here's the, here's the follow-up to that. Once you cut something out, you've got to replace it because a vacuum starts in your life, starts sucking things back in. So you cut this out of your life, and all of a sudden there's a hole, and, and, and things start getting pulled into that hole. Now, if we're not wise, what happens is, is we go back to the things that are natural to us, and those are the things that created the idol in the first place. So we cut the idol out, and it pulls back in. It's the same thing with like drug addiction. 
If you've ever known somebody who struggles with drugs, many of those people go to rehab multiple times. You know, I had an older brother that walked that journey, tried to get clean multiple different times. And so what happens is I'm going to cut drugs out, but then there's this, there's this gap of the people I used to hang out with, the, the feelings that I used to have, the, 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 the biological things that my body now is craving and needs. And so there's this hole and I, and I need to fill it with something. And the easiest thing is to fill it with what we know, which is what we just cut back out. I mean, that's not just drugs. That happens in everything. And so what happens is you see people that can't get out of the cycle. And it's the same thing with idolatry. We cut it out, but then there's this hole and, and we, it, we'll fill it with what comes natural. And it was the thing that was the idol in the first place. So when you cut it out, we've got to replace it with other things. That's when scripture and spiritual disciplines and serving and time with God's people become very important because they begin to to fill that hole with the things that God wants you to fill it with. And all of a sudden, we're, we're cutting idols out of our life and we're replacing it with the one true God, time with him, and we begin to grow spiritually. I'll tell you one last story and then we're going to get into our small groups. There's, a, there's an old French film called Jean de Florette, much older. And, and the, the plot of the story is this. Jean de Florette is, is willed some land, and he's going to start his farm. But the townspeople, they don't want him to have that land. They want to be able to have the land for themselves. And so as this, this, this guy starts trying to get his farm up and going, the townspeople come, and they uh, plug up the stream that runs through his, his land, through his property. They plug it up and they bury it. And he has no idea that it's there. And he lives in a place where there's not a lot of rainfall. And so he's this struggling farmer and he knows and discovers that there's a stream <clears throat> that's about a mile away. And so he spends his life going to and from that stream that's a mile away trying to bring water back to his crops. It becomes this back-breaking effort and he never discovers, he never figures out that on his very property, that there is an unending flow of water that brings life. I thought, man, what a great picture of idolatry. That we have a life-giving God flowing through us, ready to tap into. That even if you're a believer, if you're a believer, I mean, the Spirit of God is inside you. And we tend to go, you know what, I'm going to plug that up and do the back-breaking work of trying to find life someplace else way far away a terrible way to experience life. But we try to find life and power in powerless idols all the time. I don't know what you're going to discover is yours. But this week, I hope you'll have some conversations with your kids. Being very real and authentic, talking about what things may be idolatry in your life. Because let me tell you this, there will be nothing more powerful. A, Wednesday, this Wednesday, a message from me on Wednesday night, this message to your teenager will not be as powerful in their life as a conversation with a parent who's trying to walk with Jesus and says, listen, I think I've identified an idol in my life and it's this, and I've got to figure out how to get it out of my life. Talk about a teenager leaning in to watch an adult that they respect and love try to figure out how to walk better with the Lord. Infinitely more powerful than anything I'll ever tell them on a Wednesday night. That's why you're the primary disciple in your home. That's why God has gifted you with teenagers to live out your life in front of them. But we've got to be authentic. We've got to be real so that they can experience real life as well. Let me pray and then let you talk in your small groups.